Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've been talking to various groups with a stake in the immigration debate, and today, Utah farmers and ranchers will have their say. The Partnership for a New American Economy and the Agriculture Coalition of Immigration Reform, for Immigration Reform, rather, have released a report showing that American families are eating more imported fresh produce today than ever before, in substantial part because U.S. fresh produce growers lack enough labor to expand their production and uh, compete with foreign importers. Leland Hogan, president of Utah Farm Bureau Federation, says that immigrants play a big part in the farming community. Without their help, I'm not sure how many of us would keep our businesses running, he says. America's and Utah's farms and ranches cannot grow while our immigration system remains broken. Many Utah farmers and ranchers are calling for immigration reform. We'll be talking with some of them today. We bring in Randy Parker, CEO of Utah Farm Bureau Federation, on the telephone line. Welcome to the program. Do we have Mr. Parker on the line? There we, there we go. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here with you. We have in studio with us uh, Mark Gibbons, who's a dairy farmer in Lewiston in the Cache Valley area. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Jake Harward joins us uh, on the line, produce farmer in Springville. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Rob Smith, who is a rancher as well as an attorney in the Logan area, Cache Valley area, joins us by telephone. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Let me start with uh, Randy Parker. Um, this uh, Maybe give us a couple of the bullet points from this new report. Uh, it's, it's sounding like in America and in Utah, farmers and ranchers uh, could be expanding in several key areas, but, uh, for, but for labor. They lack labor. Yeah, uh, the American Farm Bureau over the last two or three years has been uh, very engaged in looking at what the impacts to our farmers and ranchers, and, and I think uh, what's important there is the impact to our farmers and ranchers ultimately uh, has an impact on the consumers, whether that's in uh, selection of produce uh, and, and products available, or whether that's based on uh, the, the, the cost associated with that. The American Farm Bureau has been uh, doing uh, a number of uh, of studies. One of those uh, a couple of years ago uh, pointed out how much uh, food and and agricultural products are uh, are, are are literally uh, dying on the vine or rotting in the fields, and that was in the billions of dollars. Now they're taking a look at what's happening uh, with with the costs uh, of of locally grown produce. And uh, the the escalating costs and the uh, increased problems of of harvesting that, and that that is opening the door to to greater imports of of fresh vegetables and fruits and so forth. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you dig down and you start thinking about how those products are produced in foreign lands, uh, what they can be, what conditions they can be grown under, and what the inspection requirements are compared to what happens here in the United States, I think that the, I'll just say, consumer beware, uh, and, and, and that's kind of where things are at. And as I'm reading these reports, or this report, uh, so I think the the finding was some three billion dollars or so lost from GDP in in America just from the labor side. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me just frame this a little uh, from a local standpoint, if I could. Uh, a lot of people think uh, because we've been urbanizing and we don't see as much production agriculture uh, along the, the the Wasatch Front and so forth that food and agriculture has less importance to us today in the Utah economy than it maybe did 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, let me give you some numbers that I think uh, your listeners would, would enjoy understanding. Uh, Utah agriculture contributes $17 billion to the Utah economy. Now that's uh, forward and backward linkages, as, as economists call it. Uh, that that's the ripple effect. So it's over 17 billion dollars. It uh, that that is 14 percent of the state's total gross product, the GDP. It employs 80,000 of our our Utah friends and neighbors, and has a 2.7 billion dollar uh, wage. Uh, it, it contributes. $2.7 billion in wages. So so food and agriculture is a big deal here in Utah. Let me turn to Jake Harward. Um, tell us about your operation, hay and vegetables. 
Yes, uh, we're located right here in the heart of the Wasatch Front, kind of on the southern end uh, here in Springville. Um, we farm right along I-15 and right along some, some pretty major highways going in and out of uh, the south end of the valley here. And um, we grow lots of uh, fresh sweet corn, tomatoes, watermelon, uh, different types of peppers, those kinds of things that we sell at our roadside stands throughout the state. Um, it's all picked fresh every morning, um, delivered to these stands. And we also have a fairly sizable uh, alfalfa operation um, where we, we put up close to uh, 2,000 acres of alfalfa per season. Um, and, you know, kind of on the, uh, the fresh vegetable side, everything, like I said, is picked fresh each morning and uh, delivered to these stands. And so it's a pretty intense, labor-intense uh, process to mm. get uh, our food from planting to harvest to at the stands and sold to the consumer. Let me, you made a couple of statements, very interesting, uh, sort of get us into this uh, in a press release that uh, we got from the Utah Farm Bureau. Uh, let me just take these in, in uh, individually. So first of all, you say with the great variety of jobs we have in our country, most, talking about, I guess, U.S. citizens, don't want to work on the farm. You, you, do you have trouble recruiting farm labor? Well, just to, uh, we hire um, uh, close to 50 employees during the summer between our people working at our stands and, and then our field crews. And uh, I also participate in the H-2A visa program, and that's the, the national um, program to recruit workers for agriculture. Um, there's also the H-2B, which is a visa program for more of the professional-type um, companies. <clears throat> um, but within our H-2A, there's, there's lots of requirements that we have to do before we can bring our workers from, um, we bring ours from Mexico. And I have to advertise uh, in four states um, to, to try and fill these positions uh, domestically or locally first. And out of that, I get probably four referrals. Um, and of those referrals, I have to interview each of them and what I find is most of them really aren't that interested in the job. Um, they're just filling out applications. Um, and so it is, it, that tells me that, that they're not, there's just not the workforce willing to, to do these jobs. In my description that I have to advertise, it's very detailed of the type of work, the hours, um, what type of work we'll be doing. And so I don't know if that defers them away or, or if they just aren't interested in agricultural jobs. So why do you why do you think uh, it is that you have trouble recruiting? If people can go and find other work for similar wages that isn't as hard to work. I would think so. Um, you know, we I believe the minimum wage for H two A right now is it's right around ten fifty ten dollars and fifty cents an hour, um, which is decent. Most of my workers are repeat workers, and so I'm paying them more than that. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if they just aren't in interested. Um, it does take some skill. You know, we're doing a lot of manual labor, but it's it's some skilled labor as well. Um, and to to train those people, I don't know if they just don't want to be trained or have no interest. I'm not sure. sure. Let me take the second part of your statement, then we'll get on to our other guests. Uh, you say because of this, talking about most in this country don't want to work on the farm, uh, we have to understand that we're either going to import our workers or our food. You come down on the side of food uh, or importing workers. You say, I'm more comfortable eating the food I know was grown here in a safe and responsible way. So you, you set this up. We're, we're going to have to import one piece of this. And, um, and uh, so in, in your view, you need to import the workers. Yeah. Um, I, I work with quite a few growers in uh, Southern California, um, down in the, the desert areas, and also up in the Central Valley. And a lot of these companies have actually moved part of their operations across the border. Um, uh, they're American companies because there is the workforce there, and then they can bring the food across the border. And to me, um, I have to go through a lot of hoops as far as food safety. Um, I get inspected to make sure I'm doing uh, the right things to make sure our food is safe. Um, I have to do an audit each year. And, and I'm 
not so certain that these same audits take place on the other side of the border. And so it's, there's there's kind of a double standard a little bit. We're, we're doing all this work to make sure our food safe that's grown here is safe domestically, um, but I'm not quite sure that those same standards are met on the other side of the border. And Jake so there's, Randy, there's, you may yeah. want to share yes, some go of ahead. the things that the, that the Department of Labor, the U.S. Department of Labor uh, checks and the other uh, uh, participants as well, because the Department of Labor, when they come out and do these audits for uh, uh, migrant workers, they're, they're terribly intrusive and onerous. And uh, they're, they're, as an example, if a screen door is, has a, a tear in it, uh, they can be fined as much as $2,500. If you don't have a lid for your garbage can, you can be fined as much as $2,500. There's some things that the Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Labor, is imposing on our employers here for, for migrant workers that, that are just a little bit on the nuts side. What, what Department of Labor is checking on conditions for the laborers? Is that what they're checking? Yes. On? Ostensibly, anyway, as you're saying, there there's some other things you're saying are, are included. Uh, let me uh, let me turn to uh, Mark Gibbons here, dairy farmer from from Lewiston. We were talking before we went on the air. You used the word broken to describe our our uh, labor system, our immigration uh, system. Uh, tell me some of some of the difficulties that you're you're facing. First of all, tell me about your operation. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have a uh, dairy farm that we milk 600 cows a day, and we farm 1,200 acres of ground, and it's fairly labor-intensive. And for a dairy, you're standing on cement for eight hours a day, taking that shift, uh, you know, milking those cows. And it's not, uh, you know, it's it's as clean as we can possibly make it, but cows are cows, and it's hard work. You know, there's a lot of training involved with that. But uh, we we haven't had a lot of problem uh, retaining the employees that we have, and we do everything we can to make sure that they're here legally. But legally, uh, through Homeland Security, we cannot ask them when they come to apply for a job, are you legally here? You know, let's see your green card. Let's see this documentation. Or they can come back and, and get us in trouble because we've asked those questions of them, and it's too intrusive for them. Um, the H-2A program has no slot in it for year-round workers, and so there's really no way for the dairy industry to be able to recruit workers to come. And, and uh, what happens a lot of the times is workers that have been found to be here illegally are terminated at one dairy, and they just go to another dairy and, and work there until they have a letter, what they call a no-match letter, which means their, their Social Security numbers don't match anything. And we get a no-match letter and say, okay, you've got to find employment elsewhere or go home. And and so it's, it's just a game of merry-go-round for us. Um, it really pits one industry against the other because some of the workers that have come here legally on the H-2A program have been recruited to come and work on dairies by certain people. The law enforcement, they're not able to go and, and uh, take care of that problem because of the rules in Homeland Security. And it's it's made... You know, it's a mess, and it's broken. <laughs> uh, and uh, let me ask you the, the question I asked uh, uh, Jake Harward. You have, do you have difficulty finding domestic workers? Well, I have a friend that what happens is Homeland Security will come out and audit a dairy. And what they do when they audit it is they'll go through all of our hiring records, you know, and, and make sure that all the numbers match, everything is, you know, the, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. All those things happen, and then they go back and they say, okay, you've got – this friend of mine had employed 65 men and women, and they came back and said 54 of those don't match. And so you've got 90 days to terminate 54 employees. First thing he did was uh, say, okay, I'm going to terminate, go by a third, and the guys that have been here the least amount of time, I'll you know let go first because they take the least amount of training. Well, some of those guys left. The people that had been there the longest amount of time said, boy, we're under the axe, you know, it's coming up. So they just left. It turned out to be a nightmare for the whole dairy operation because the people that were taking care of the animals were gone, and so it turns into a food safety issue and a, a, an animal health issue. And, and it's they come back and, and uh, go into um, 
hire people. They put out a notice that they need to hire people. He said 17 people showed up, and 16 of the 17 were there to get their uh, card signed. It said they were looking for work so they could get extended uh, benefits. And the 17th one said, I need a job. And so he came to work, lasted for three hours, and said, this is, this is hard work. This, I won't do it, and left. Oh, I, <laughs> I want to follow up with with this. Uh, um, then we'll talk with uh, with Rob Smith Smithsmore. Um, are we? I, I don't know. As, as American citizens, are we just gotten soft? I, I and I add to that. I, I keep hearing from various uh, workers uh, or you know labor unions and the like uh, that immigrants are taking my job. Yeah, I I've heard that a lot. You know, these immigrants are taking American jobs. I know young men that go to high school, live very close to me, that I've offered a job to, and they would rather go work for 3 or $4 less and stock shelves at a grocery store because, obviously, it's more of a social atmosphere for a young man to do that. And it's, I mean, it's hard work stocking shelves. But it's clean, and, and uh, the hours are probably better. We milk 24 hours a day, and so there are some shifts through the middle of the night and uh, there you know you look at these uh, Hispanic fellows that come and look for a job their their uh, family structure is very strong once you get to know these people they're, they're very impressive they they're very they're strong family values um, most of them would crawl across the desert to be able to feed their families hmm. and maybe if I was in their shoes I would do the same thing yeah uh, we are talking about, obviously, immigration reform. There are uh, many Utah farmers and ranchers calling for immigration reform and agree with Mark Gibbons, who says the current system is broken. Uh, there's a new report out from the Partnership for the New American Economy and the Agriculture Coalition for Immigration Reform uh, showing that American families, for example, are eating more imported fresh produce today than ever before. In substantial part, says the report, because U.S. fresh produce growers lack enough labor to expand their production and compete with foreign importers. We're talking with Randy Parker, Utah Farm Bureau CEO, Mark Gibbons, dairy farmer in Lewiston, Jake Harwood, produce farmer in Springville, and Rob Smith, local rancher in the Cache Valley area, attorney in Logan as well. You're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will. What do you think about the current immigration system? Does it need reform or not? If you agree that it does need reform, uh, how should we go about that? The uh, number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We bring in Rob Smith. Uh, you are a rancher and attorney. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, so you're you're living the dream. I I know growing up in Vernal, I had a, f- a couple of friends who uh, wanted to become professionals so they could re- retire and become farmers, uh, afford to become farmers. You're well, I, you're doing I both. Took a different route. I yeah. could see that that I couldn't make it full time on the family ranch, and decided I better do something in addition to that. So. Oh, so you grew up on a ranch, and then and then decided to supplement that with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm about a fourth generation cattle rancher. Um, involved, been involved in ag production all my life, cattle ranching, but decided I needed something to go along with that. So oh. I practice law, and I, I actually do a lot of farm and ranch estate planning. So oh, I enjoy that. So tell me, what, do, you, do you have trouble recruiting workers? We do, Tom. Um, typically in our situation, we're looking at hiring workers for uh, seasonal periods. Um, a lot of times we're looking for someone in the wintertime who would basically be in a remote location. We run cattle in Idaho and Nevada. Um, oftentimes we would need someone in Nevada, say, for for four to five months um, to, to live in a camp-type situation and check on cattle, um, ride a horse, and, and be out in the weather. You know, and a lot of those I guess that sounds good to a lot of people initially, but as we've heard from some of the other uh, their comments today, it, it really boils down to it is a lot of hard work, and we have difficulty finding people, local people, who are interested in doing that type of work. Um, a lot of times you get someone who thinks it sounds good, and after a week or two they've decided that it's just not for them. We've had really good luck with immigrant labor in these situations, um, 
because they are devoted um the good ones do a great job they they have a loyalty uh, to get the job done and uh, again you get the right immigrant workers and they seem to have a lot of background and ability to work with livestock and they bring some of that expertise so you know we've had good luck in those situations using immigrant workers for that do you use the uh, the h2a program you know we have but the biggest problem with the h2a program is just the bureaucratic nightmare that it is mm. um to, to get someone here at the time you need them um it, it it's definitely a headache I was at a meeting last week for one of our grazing associations, and it, it the, the situation developed that we're going to need someone, a rider, a range rider for that association. Now that starts in about two and a half weeks that we'll need somebody, and so we're going to, you know, we're doing some advertising and getting the word out, um, but we need somebody to come on in two and a half weeks. Again, in a you know beyond the beyond the allotment for about a three month period, and then then the job is over. It's difficult under that type of a situation to go through the H two A program and and get someone qualified and timely and and someone that can do the job. Mm. Now, is it in your industry? Uh, where does the responsibility lie to make sure that you don't have undocumented workers working on your operation. It, it's, it seems like once a worker you know, gets in somewhere, then as Mark Gibbons was saying, then they can go to another operation. And, and so under that scenario, likely X number of undocumented workers in the industry. You know, there likely is, is quite a few undocumented out there. Um, my experience has been that, that a lot of ranchers um, maybe don't ask and, and don't get into the middle of it. Um, our industry is a little bit different than maybe the dairy industry where it's, it's year-round. A lot of ranching-type situations are three or four or five months. Um, now, some of the bigger operations where they've got enough work to keep someone busy or multiple people busy year-round, um, you know, I, I know they ensure that they go through uh, a different program or, or ensure that their workers are legal. But it is a challenge. You know, it's a challenge to the producer. It's a challenge to the to the worker as well. And I, I get the feeling from some of the, the immigrant workers that are here, they feel like maybe it's better to just keep their head down and, and find a job somewhere and, and do the work. Um, I think there's a concern on their side that if they try to become legal, they're going to lose what status they have. They're going to get sent back to their homeland, and, and they won't be able to come back. So I think there's a perception out there among the immigrant community that, you know, it's better to just kind of keep your head down, work, and, and just move forward under the current system. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and uh, talk more with uh, Rob Smith, who you just heard from. He's a rancher as well as an attorney in Logan. Jake Harwood is a produce farmer in Springville. Mark Gibbons is with us in studio dairy farmer in Lewiston. Randy Parker is Utah Farm Bureau CEO. And we hope to get your perspective on this. Perhaps you have an experience in, in this area. Uh, what's your view on the current immigration system? Do you think it needs reform? If so, uh, how do we go about that? And what, uh, what shapes would that take? The way to reach us is uh, email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can join us on the phone, 1-800-826-1495. If you uh, tweet, we uh, can uh, bring your uh, comment up as well. Just use the hashtag AccessUtah. More following the break. Waste not. Leaking toilets are the number one cause for high water bills. You can place a few drops of food coloring into your tank to check for leaks. If the food coloring appears in the bowl without flushing, you have a small leak. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. So the story of David and Goliath. Improbable underdog defeats the powerful favorite, right? Uh, maybe not. Goliath is a sitting duck. He doesn't have a chance. 
So why do we keep calling David an underdog? I'm Guy Raz. Things you thought you knew that are wrong on the next TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday beginning at 7 a.m. and featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or a ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've been talking on this program to various groups with a stake in the immigration debate. Today, Utah farmers and ranchers are having their say. The Partnership for New American Economy and Agriculture Coalition for Immigration Reform have released a report. And President of Utah Farm Bureau Federation, Leland Hogan, says that uh, without immigrants' help, he's not sure how many of us, meaning their operations in Utah, would uh, keep our businesses running, and that America's and Utah's farms and ranches cannot grow while our immigration system remains broken. And so we're talking with Utah Farm Bureau CEO Randy Parker, Mark Gibbons, who's a dairy farmer in Lewiston, Jake Harward, produce farmer in Springville, and Rob Smith, rancher and attorney in the Logan area. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us uh, to our email, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Randy Parker, we've been outlining some reasons uh, why we have a labor shortage uh, I want to push back a little bit with some arguments on the other side. Uh, there is there is some harm, isn't there, in, in workers inevitably if there's a magnet for labor, such as farm industry. Uh, there's going to be social security numbers stolen. There's going to be ID theft. Um, we're going to have trouble perhaps controlling the, the borders. Uh, so I guess that would point to the need for reform. So maybe to that, to that point, do you, do you see reform needed for those reasons as well? Well, absolutely. Uh, we, we need to know uh, from, from a security standpoint, not only uh, food security, but national security, who is moving uh, uh, both directions uh, across our border, those that are coming in, those that are leaving, and, uh, and, and, and have a, a greater understanding of that. That's part of the reason why we, we're, we're challenging this, and, and it is broken and needs to have something done. I'd like to go back just a little bit to uh, uh, what's going on with with the legal process. I met with a, a, a group of uh, sheep, uh, sheep producers and members of our congressional delegation about 10 days ago, and this is really uh, a, a, a very focused part of what the problem is, and, and I'll go through that very quickly with you. A sheep herder has a more than a, a, than a seasonal need. They'll bring them in on two- and three-year contracts. They're herders from uh, mostly South American countries. When they go through the paperwork and they're required to pay round-trip airfare, they're required to provide them with a cell phone and a number of other things, that they, the hoops that they have to jump through, the cost estimate of bringing a single sheep herder in through the H-2A program is about $6,000. We're seeing a, a, a large part of them, or well, a, a growing part of them may be the better statement, jumping those contracts that they signed to be a, to, to herd sheep while they're here in the United States. And, uh, and, and through investigations, they're finding them in the hospitality industry. They're finding them uh, in the energy industry. And in fact, they've tracked some of their employees to some of these other uh, uh, employers. They've turned those, that information into immigration and to law enforcement and they've told them that they're not going to waste their time, that that's a minor offense, and they, they, unless they've committed some, uh, some, some more egregious act than just jumping their contracts, they're not going to follow up. Now, that's a frustrating part of this process because uh, that, that's, a, that's a violation of federal law, and, and they're going in and they're checking people's I-9 forms, but when it's drawn to their attention that they can do follow-up on it, they won't. They won't uh, uh, commit the resources to, to follow up. So we're seeing a growing problem in that area, Tom. Mm. What uh, What would reform look like in your in your view? What should it look like? 
Well, one one of the issues is uh, that the the folks that come in here and do a job, they have to have the ability and the and 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 the understanding and the assurance that when they come in here and do a job, uh, and they return to their their native land after that seasons completed that they'll have the ability to return we're finding because the process is broken they get lost in it that a lot of these people are, are and this has been stated previously by by your guests that uh, they're just they're they're not willing to 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 come out of the shadows because they never they may never be able to come back and uh, and, and provide that service for American consumers that helps them uh, meet the the needs of their families. Do you see uh, Leland Hogan, your president, has talked about uh, he's skeptical that America's and Utah's farms can't continue to grow if we have a broken system for immigration for labor, and uh, he's worried about businesses or you know farms, ranches going out of business. Do you do you share that worry? Oh, absolutely. If we don't have a, a, a an assurance of a of a labor force. Uh, there, there's not many other choices uh, because we really don't have domestically grown our, our young people and other others that might pr- provide labor in this area. They're they're just not doing it. I know one uh, sheep rancher, uh, and under the H-2A program, they're required to advertise any job in in the on the ranch, sheep herding included, that uh, that that could provide a job to a foreigner they're required to uh advertise that that job's available and prove that not that an american has not uh, made an application to uh to 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 supply that uh labor uh service the 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 one i'm thinking of in particular from up in park city has been advertising for over a decade through this program has never had one individual follow up that was a a native american hmm. And that remains <laughs> seems to me that's a that's a problem. It's in, a huge in, problem, in and, and that's the, the problem. Uh, you know, we've got a choice here about uh, America's food security going forward with a growing population, and that food security is not only the 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 the, the safety of it as it gets to the to the farms or to the grocery store shelves. But it also applies to our ability to produce that, and you know Americans right now uh, are paying in the neighborhood of about 10% of their disposable income on on their food, and that, that still is the best deal anywhere on the globe today. So you know these farmers and ranchers are providing society with a, a, an unbelievable product in both quality, abundance, and selection, uh, and and you know immigration is just one key piece of that continuing for the American people and having food security going forward. That's Randy Parker, CEO of Utah Farm Bureau. We're talking about uh, uh, ranchers and farmers, specifically in Utah, who are advocating for immigration reform. They're saying that uh, they can't get domestic labor, um, that uh, citizens just won't just won't to do the job, and they need immigrant labor. And because the system, as they see it, is broken, there are economic consequences and perhaps existential consequences for some farms and ranches. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 with your, your view, or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email. Let me turn next to Jake Harward, a produce farmer in uh, Springville. You set up a, a sort of an either-or either um, either we can import our workers or we can import our food. This report newly out shows that uh, imports, especially of fresh produce, is growing. Um, so some would say, Jake Harward, that uh, this is just globalization, and then, then that's fine. We can, you know, whatever the economy uh, produces, you uh, import your workers or your food, and the, the economy is dictating at this point importing the food, so where's the harm? Well, um, I would kind of like to make a comment towards uh, some of Randy's comments. Um, We had some legislation that passed the Senate uh, a year to a year and a half ago, and I did contact uh, several of uh, of our congressmen to get this passed. Um, I know uh, Senator Hatch did did a lot of work to get it through the Senate, and there was a lot of concessions in there regarding border safety, 
Um, what are we doing with the, those that are here illegally now that have been here working, paying taxes for the last 20, 30 years? Um, and also, what are we going to do to get to get more workers here um, quicker, legally, um, not to basically reform the H-2A so that some of these other industries, such as ranchers, dairymen, that have year-round work um, to keep these, these workers here? And um, it got shot down in the House. Um, and I know that uh, our Congressman Chaffetz was, was fairly opposed to it because it didn't have enough concessions uh, regarding um, the, the workers that were here, already here working um, illegally, uh, to how to handle them. And so I, I'm willing to, to give those concessions. You know, we need to get these workers here quickly, legally, um, most of them just want to come here and work and go back. Some of them want to come and, and keep their family here and, and basically start a new life, a better life here in America. And I think that's what America uh, stands for and what we, what we need to do is, is to reform this to get it to that point where we have a better system. Hmm. We have a caller. Uh, we'll go to her uh, next. I just wanted to follow up. Um, I can see definitely how with the current system, and you have a shortage of labor, that's going to harm you directly and fellow producers. But maybe on the macro level, um, maybe you could talk about, about that. You know, if I can get fresh produce, albeit imported, perhaps that's okay for me as a consumer, even though, you know, it harms specific domestic producers. Well, I, I feel like um, if, if we do that, we're harming, harming some of our domestic producers, as well as is that food safe? Is it is it fresh enough? You know, has it been on a boat for two weeks, and then some of that uh, breakdown of that produce, and not so much the flavor and, and the freshness that we like to have. Um, and the other thing is, is it safe? You know, where was it produced? How was it produced? Where? How did it get here? Those type of things are some of the questions that I have. Um, that, as well as the harm that it's it's having by not buying that or uh, having that available domestically. Hmm. Let's go to uh, Bettina from Springdale. Bettina, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Um, yes, I was at Dixie Documentaries um, Film Festival in the fall, and they had a documentary there called Grounded, and it was about the vets coming back and healing and working on the farms and becoming great farmhands. Um, but they did say in that documentary that about 61% of all the sm uh, small farmers and ranchers are starting to retire and that is just a, a really you know bad thing for the country and I think what this is such an important issue that you guys ought to spend at least once a um, month on it and uh, uh, on, that's all I have to say. Oh okay just to yeah. be clear uh, spend once a month on immigration or on on farm well, issues? On farming uh -huh. and the problems they're running into the political uh, manipulations and everything. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll consider a future program just on just on that. Uh, thanks, thanks, Bettina. Bye. Bye now. And, and this is Randy. Maybe just a yeah, comment yes. on that. Uh, she is right that we should be concerned about that. The average age of Utah farmers and ranchers is in the upper 50s now, closing in on 60 years old, and uh, it, it's tough to transfer a farm from one generation to the next. Uh, the regulatory juggernaut that uh, our food produce producers are dealing with, all of those things play into it. Immigration, quite honestly, uh, Tom, is, is just one of a myriad of, uh, of issues that uh, we as a country need to determine how important domestic production and food security is to the 98% of American consumers that aren't on farms and ranches today. Hmm. Let me uh, turn to Rob Smith. Um, you 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 say four generations in your operation? Yeah, yeah. Are you are you running into this this problem? Uh, do you see it around you of uh, farmers and ranchers retiring and the next generation not taking over the operation? You know that that certainly is a concern. Um, I was actually recently on a talk show, a radio show, and we talked about that. I think statistically, the average age is either fifty-eight or fifty-nine. And that uh, the the Utah 
about it, or the U.S. Department of Agriculture does a, a census about every 10 years, and, and they've noticed that that just can, that age continues to, to rise. Um, and like Randy Parker says, that is certainly one of many factors um, that, that is a challenge in agriculture and, and in the foreseeable future of agriculture. Before and, and, and yes, go one, ahead. Yes. One thing that I think is important that the listeners know about immigration is that agriculture reform um, encompasses actually three prongs. One is enforcement, two is a redesigned guest worker program, and, and three is an adjustment of status of those skilled workers here. I, I think a lot of people hear reform and they think that there's not going to be any enforcement or that, that enforcement goes out the door. And, and that's not true with agricultural reform that's currently being proposed by, some, by these agriculture groups that we're involved in. Um, enforcement is certainly a, an aspect of that as well. Mm. And it seems like there, if I read the politics, seems like there's appetite for reform in the Senate but not the House. So I, I don't know... Do you have hope that reform is going to happen anytime soon? We always have hope. <laughs> I, I think I think as we can educate the public on what the issues are, you know, I, I think a lot of these things like make sense. Uh, a lot of the ideas behind agricultural reform, for instance, this idea that we adjust the status of skilled workers here. I I recently ran into a worker, a, a guy from Peru, um, he's been over here working for 20-plus years, and he's he's been able to do construction work in the summer and ranch-type work in the winter, and, and he's pretty knowledgeable when it comes to handling livestock and horsemanship. Um, he's also pretty handy in the construction area. He, he finally is legal, and it took him nine years um, he, he now is legal, and, and he can now go and visit his family in Peru. And he likes to go back home for two to three months a year and visit his family and then come back and work the remainder of the year here. And, and he's building some things and doing some things for his family in Peru. But it would be nice if that individual would have been able to go through a, a much easier or more simple process for for him for him to become a legitimate worker here rather than a nine-year process. Mm. Let me bring uh, back in Mark Gibbons, our dairy farmer from Lewiston, who joins us in, in studio here. Uh, first of all, uh, um, going off what Rob Smith uh, just said, and uh, something you said earlier, uh, there's a humanitarian angle here, too, and a, a kind of a personal. You, you said you get to know some of your workers, immigrant workers. You get to admire them, and uh, probably a, a personal stake in here. You want to... You want to see some help for them. You do. I mean, you get to know these men and their families, and they're as closely knit as any <clears throat> any of us. Excuse me. When uh, it also works on the flip side of that, because immigration is an extremely emotional and societal issue. Uh, we've seen that with with right here in the state of Utah, with the pressures to and and uh, against reform. And, uh, you know, one side just says, okay, load everybody up, haul them out. The other side, you know, let's take a common sense approach. And it's very difficult to work through emotional issues. It doesn't matter if it's on a farm, in a, you know, in a Senate uh, representative setting or, or anything else. These, um, these people are here providing a tremendous service for us. They're, pro they're producing safe, wholesome product. Um, when you talk about this food safety, I, I look at it this way. We can imp import our food, but we'll never really lose a, a war. It seems like we always lose, but not voluntarily because of the restrictions we place on ourselves. We, we extend it longer than we should or whatever the circumstances. But the day that we depend on other people to feed this country is the day that we'll be in slavery. That, that's the day that, that we'll be under someone else's thumb. And, you know, you, you can go a lot of different places and be independent, but when you depend on someone to feed you, you're at their mercy. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's an extremely important thing. We're, I'm a third-generation dairy farmer, and you talk about transitioning the farm. We're transitioning the, to our, uh, some of our sons, and it is a nightmare. 
trying to get that done. And it's, but it's really interesting. These kids that have grown up on a farm in our family have had a good enough experience that they want to be there. Mm. And the margins in, in agriculture are so slim. I mean, it's, it's difficult for young people to say, okay, I'm not going to go get a 80, 90, $100,000 a year job. I'm going to stay here on the farm, do a lot of manual labor all my life, my life, depend on being a price taker because hopefully I'll get a, a good price for milk or for alfalfa or for produce or whatever that is that I'm producing. And, you know, the ag community is usually a price takers on these things and hope, you know, that for the best on those, on the outcome. And then the quality of life, you know, we have to feel like it's, it's worth that to us to be able to do that. And then we have to, to, uh, it seems, it seems like we fight with the EPA. We fight with what happens in immigration and it's, Randy Parker hit it right on the head. It's a whole myriad of issues that we deal with. The frustrating thing about immigration to me is that sometimes it seems like a soapbox for our elected officials to either get elected or get someone else unelected. And and it's it's uh, Senator Feinstein. When you mentioned the Senate and the House, Senator Feinstein from California has been working on comprehensive immigration for ten plus years and trying to put together a, a coalition. And I'm on a National Immigration Coalition Task Force that meets about once a year, twice a year. And it's frustrating to see the, the barriers that, that they place upon themselves in the uh, legislature that will not let it move forward. Mm. Just briefly, because I, I want to I want to check back in with uh, about a minute left with Jake Harward on his operation. Uh, you have a sort of an outline, Mark Gibbons. Just tell us the, the the bill sponsor and the bill number. People can look this up. Well, the house you, you like this bill that was was run a couple of years ago. Yeah, we had a, a, a really good representative in the state, Bill Wright uh, from Millard County. He ran a bill, and it was House Bill One Sixteen, and it passed the House. It was pretty controversial. He did mention in there that it was the first time he'd received death threats. Hmm. And, you know, the, you know, that goes to the social and the emotional part of the thing. But he, he had gotten this, and it's a common-sense approach to immigration, and it makes these guys responsible, gets them to come out of the shadows, be identified, be participating citizens, well, not citizens, but players, so that we're not, you know, as a, a uh, community, uh, we're, we're not paying for these people's medical, schooling, you know, all those benefits that, that we have have to provide to them, but it makes them so that they can come out, pay into the system, and provide for themselves, mm-hmm. be identified. A lot of these people aren't here asking for citizenship. They're just looking for work, and uh, they're not looking for amnesty. They're, they're just looking for a way to feed their family. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, Bill Wright, House Bill 116. You could Google that and get, yes. get details on that. Just about a minute left. I want to check back in with uh, Jake Howard. Um, I was curious... Uh, Going off of what Bettina said, what? How many generations in your operation? Uh, I'm a third generation. Uh, my grandpa began the farm here in Springville in '45, uh, mm-hmm. 1945, and uh, involved is there is there is my father um, and my o- older brother. <clears throat> I do have two sisters, and uh, they help out in the summertime at the fruit stands, um, but not so much on the production side of it here at the farm. Um, and uh, we were a traditional alfalfa beef cattle farm until I was uh, about 10 years old. And then we started growing some produce to have summertime, something to do in the summertime to, and a little cash flow for us kids. And it's just grown from that. Currently, we have about 30 roadside stands uh, around the state. And uh, we also have a sizable pumpkin operation that we mm-hmm. do in the fall. Yeah, I guess it, it uh, illustrates that this is, in many cases, very much bound up in, in family. Well, we're we're uh, we're out of time. We'll uh, we'll consider uh, following Bettina's suggestion. Come back and uh, talk about some general farm issues. We appreciate our guest, Randy Parker, CEO of Utah Farm Bureau. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been great. Mark Gibbons, Dairy Farmer Lewiston. Thanks for coming in. You bet. Thank you. Jake Harward, Produce Farmer in Springville. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And Rob Smith, who's a rancher and a an attorney in Logan. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Tom. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. 
Hi, this is Mark Larez Casanova from the Utah Master Naturalist Program at Utah State University Extension. Warm springtime weather brings clear trails up in the mountains, and hiking through the shade of Douglas fir on a warm weekend day had me wondering about Utah's national forests and how they came to be. Back in the days of the early pioneers, Utah's mountains were recognized as resources for survival, providing clean water for drinking and irrigation, and lumber for building homes. The high mountain pastures were also valuable summer forage for livestock. In the late 1840s, Parley Pratt declared, the supply of pasture for grazing animals is without limit in every direction. Millions of people could live in these countries and raise cattle and sheep to any amount. Many settlers shared this view and unmanaged grazing resulted in deteriorated rangelands in just 20 to 30 years. By 1860, some Utah towns were experiencing regular flooding and heavy erosion due to insufficient vegetation to stabilize the soil. Unregulated timber harvesting during the same period also contributed to these conditions. In 1881, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Division of Forestry, later renamed Forest Service, was established, and its first job was to gather information about the condition of the nation's forests. In 1902, Albert F. Potter, who was the inspector of grazing for the General Land Office, conducted a survey of potential forest reserves in Utah. Potter stated that the ranges of the state have suffered from a serious drought for several years past, and this, in addition to the very large number of livestock, especially of sheep, has caused the summer range to be left in a very barren condition. The demand for lumber and wool during the First World War again led to increased timber harvesting and grazing on our forests. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, Franklin D. Roosevelt established the Civilian Conservation Corps to help implement conservation projects across the country. The CCC was fundamental in reforesting much of the Wasatch and Uinta mountain ranges, planting over three million trees in nine years. Utah's forest reserves were created in the years soon after Albert Potter's surveys and were gradually combined into Utah's seven national forests that now cover approximately 10 and a half million acres, or about 20% of the state. Grazing and timber harvesting still occur on much of Utah's national forests, but our practices are supported by scientific research and over a century of experience, ensuring more sustainable multiple use and management of our forests today. For Wild About Utah, I'm Mark Larez Casanova. Wild About Utah is a partnership of the Stokes Nature Center, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, and Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Stay tuned for the TED Radio Hour coming up today at 10 o'clock, followed by a performance today at 11.